1: Can I please have your attention? Can you, dig it? Greetings dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant podcast brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, excited about this is this is this is sort of like Schrodinger's guest. Um, it's it's an interpositional problem. He's not a first-time guest, but he's a first-time with me because uh, I don't know six months a year ago uh, I uh, asked Klan to sub for me in Klan Kitchen, um, and uh, he had uh, he had Luke Coffee on to talk about Ukraine stuff, and I thought it was a great podcast, and I had to give it a respectable period of time before I had him back on to talk to me. So I think that time has passed. Um, there's lots of stuff going on with Ukraine. Uh, Luke Coffey is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. He's long, bit long specialized on transatlantic, I think the technical term in the in the literature is stuff, and also various uh, issues around NATO and Eurasia and security, and um, and Luke, welcome to The Remnant. Welcome back, back to The Remnant.
2: Yeah, thanks. So thanks, Jonah. It's great to be back. It's great to be here with you uh, one-on-one for the first time. I had a great time with Clon, and I look forward to our, our discussion today together.
1: So um, big picture, you and I are in violent agreement about the importance of Ukraine, helping Ukraine, resisting Russia. When I've heard you talk about this stuff, both on here and also on the London Telegraph podcast, which I'm a big booster of you, I think, rightly for public p- diplomacy sake. I don't know what the right word for it would be. Um, emphasize the, the, the national security interest of the United States in all of this. Um, where I'm, I'm still a bit more of a moralist. And I just think countries that have a policy of abducting children and raping people who and trying to crush democr- nations, trying to build up a democracy need to be resisted. Um, but I don't discount or disregard or disagree with uh, any of the national security arguments either. So I just, with that level setting, so where do you see the situation now? We're going to talk about domestic stuff in a little bit. Uh, but like, where do you see the situation now on, on the battlefield in Europe, in Kyiv? Um, how's it all going? What do you think the counteroffensive is? Just this is your opening briefing, as it were.
2: Thanks. Well, uh, you know, of course, it's, it's well known at this point that Ukraine is, in, uh, some would say in the middle. I actually don't think we know exactly where they are in the process of their 2023 counteroffensive. Uh, I, I think we probably uh, we've all watched too many Hollywood movies over the years where we think, you know, a counteroffensive has this start point where, you know, there's a, a young officer firing a pistol into the air and then the tanks move forward and then the fighting commences. I think these uh the this sort of warfare, this industrial level state on state conflict uh is is such that it's impossible to know exactly or to identify exactly when counter counteroffensive starts or or, or, or or when it ends. So I think there's so many moving pieces. You have a front line that is about, if you stretched it out, 900 miles long. And that is the straight line distance from Washington, D.C. to just outside Kansas City, Missouri. You have hundreds of thousands of soldiers on each side of this front line, and you have tens of thousands of pieces of equipment. So it's a very complex, a situation. So there's no doubt that Ukraine is in, in the process of their counteroffensive. Uh, there's been a lot of reporting about uh, expectations not having been met. I think uh, th- these uh, re- people who believe this are hopelessly naive about what to expect when it comes to the speed uh, of this counteroffensive. I've been saying from the very beginning that if you can't cope with watching Uh, Bradley's uh, U.S. strikers and Leopard Tanks burning on Twitter, then you should probably log out until about November or December because that's when we'll know whether or not this counteroffensive has been a success or failure. It's not over until it's over. And uh, right now it does look like that the Ukrainians are starting to make some positive gains uh, breaching the first line of defense. And it's taken a long time, but there are reasons why it has taken a long time.
1: Yeah, so like one of the reasons, uh, and on all of these questions, you are free to reject the premise and correct me because you know more about this than I do. But my understanding is that one of the reasons why it's taking a long time and why some of the criticisms from from particularly American administration officials and others is unfair to a certain extent is that we, the Ukrainians do not have air supremacy. And when you don't have air supremacy, it's very difficult to clear minefields, for instance. Um, uh, if you have control of the air, we know how to clear minefields, but if you don't have control of the air, it's very easy to kill people trying to clear minefields. So it makes it a slower process. And, but one of the things I'm kind of still flummoxed by is why Russia doesn't have, Ukraine doesn't have air, air, air supremacy, but neither does Russia. Um, and that is not something I think a lot of people would have predicted going into this? What, what's your theory as to why that's the case? Well, Russia's
2: uh, on, on the front lines, especially in the south, in Zaporizhia, the, the region in the south where the, the seemingly the main effort of this counteroffensive is taking place. I would say Russia does have a tactical air advantage. Uh, now, uh, strategically, a nation uh, over the whole of Ukraine, you're right, Russia hasn't been able to establish air superiority. And I think that's down to the creativity and the bravery of the Ukrainians to take older platforms and use them very effectively, the ability of Ukraine's Western partners to quickly backfill uh, Russian, Soviet, Russian-made uh, aircraft that Ukraine was flying with much-needed spare parts and munitions and, in some cases, actual aircraft from the stocks of Central and Eastern European countries that had these as legacy aircraft from their time in, in the Warsaw Pact and uh, and, and then just um, the, the willingness to adapt quickly on the Ukrainian side I think this has all contributed to Ukraine's uh, ability to deny Russia air superiority over the skies of Ukraine but on the, like I said on a tactical level especially when it comes to rotary wing aircraft attack helicopters, the Russians are being very effective and this is one of the biggest concerns that many of us have had about this counteroffensive. But we are starting to see uh, Ukraine uh, perform better in terms of localized air defense on the front lines. And I think this is helping to contribute to some of their successes uh, that we've seen in in the past couple of weeks. In addition to the lack of air superiority or or air dominancy on on the side of Ukraine, there's also the issue of training. A lot of the troops that are being used for this counteroffensive were the newly trained brigades that were training in the UK, training in Poland and Germany, across Western Europe. And they just didn't have the uh, the, the battle, ex- the combat experience. They quickly got that combat experience over the summer, and they've learned the lessons to be effective on the battlefield and to stay alive. And I think that's also why just now we're starting to see more uh, uh, tactical gains by the Ukrainians, because their troops that were once fresh in late spring early summer are now combat tested and hardened and then finally uh, the the issue of of time and the the amount of time that the Ukrainians need in order to uh, they're worried about the the timing, how the timing is viewed in the West and that's not going fast enough. But now that they see that the situation is starting to change on the front lines, you're starting to make advancements, you're starting to see uh, a a new, I would say, emphasis, a new uh, momentum from the Ukrainian leadership with its messaging to the West to say, hey, you know, this isn't over yet. Uh, We we have plenty of time uh, to get this right. We're going to do this safely, and we're going to do this effectively, and we're doing this in a way that no other military has done in recent memory. Uh, you newly trained forces and uh, without air superiority so I think overall, considering
1: the circumstances, Ukraine is doing quite well yeah I mean that's, that' was I mean on the, just on the last point it's you know NATO doctrine says you don't do a lot of this stuff in the counteroffensive without air superiority, and we're saying why aren't you doing this stuff even though they don't have control of the air which is asking a lot of somebody else to do on their own soil, you know, you know, to get your own people killed. Um, I mean, it'd be one thing if American troops were there, which I'm not in favor of, but to then say, you know, pull on an Eisenhower and say, Hey, look, here's how we're going to do it. It's another thing to say, here's how you should do it. Um, but without actually having the ingredients in place to do it the way you know, we would do it, if that makes any sense.
2: And, yeah, that's absolutely right. And because, uh, because of our dithering on providing Ukraine the weapons and the munitions that it needs, uh, this gave Russia time to fortify these positions, to build these positions. And it's all available for anyone with access to commercial satellite imagery to see. These are heavy, heavily fortified lines of defense, linear lines of defense, Uh, with uh, minefields and various anti-tank obstacles. And this just takes time to breach. But when they are breached, then things start to move quickly. Because when Russia has to go from its first line of defense and retreat or withdraw back to its second line of defense, then it too has its minefields to worry about. And and then with the proliferation of commercial UAVs conducting recon missions, then The Ukrainians will have a better idea where the minefields are and where the gaps are because the Russians aren't going to retreat through their own minefields. At least they're not going to if they're withdrawing, you know, properly. Uh, So we're we're going to start seeing some movement in the in the next month or two. Uh, I'm certain of that. How far the Ukrainians will get, it's it's anyone's guess. But we will start seeing some movement, and we need to start thinking now about 2024. We have to stop seeing. Ukraine's fight of national survival as a series of individual counteroffensives that take place every year that we arm and equip and train the Ukrainians for. And instead, we need to see this as one long, continuous campaign that's going to have ups and downs, uh, victories and defeats, uh, but it's going to be for the long haul, and we need to be prepared for this.
1: So what's your sense? I mean, again, I want to get, we're kind of, putting the cart before the horse in some of this, but um, what is your sense about, you know, if you talk to actual Ukrainians, you hear, which I'm assuming you do more than I do, actually Ukrainians are perfectly comfortable complaining about Zelensky. You know, he is not, I mean, the, Zelensky's biggest fans in the West want to talk him about as this Churchillian, Lincolnian figure and how, you know, and which I have no problem with in general, right? Because I, mean, I do think he has been a heroic, you know, essential figure in this all in this whole thing. But the Ukrainians get pissed off about, you know, normal human things about the government. And they they say so. What is your sense about his actual political popularity, uh, the stability of of his government in Ukraine going forward? You know, if there were elections held today, how would he do that kind of thing?
2: Well, it's difficult to say because of the, you know, the situation in Almost 20% of Ukraine is one that is under foreign occupation. But let's not forget that President Zelensky and his party won with landslides when they were last, uh, during the last elections. Uh, There is a debate going on now on whether or not uh, the Ukrainians should hold uh, presidential and parliamentary elections uh, in the near future as they were originally scheduled. This would be, this has to be a matter for the Ukrainians and the Ukrainians alone to decide if they want to, if they want to do this. Um, from anecdotally, what I hear speaking to Ukrainians, even those from opposition parties, is that uh, President Zelensky is respected as a wartime leader. Um, but uh, as you mentioned, Jonah, you always have you know, bread and butter issues that drive domestic politics, and uh, that's no different in, uh, for Ukraine right now, even with war going on so it's difficult to you know speculate what would happen if you had elections but i think uh i think overall people understand uh the important role that president zelensky is playing and he hasn't been hyper uh, partisan in any of his you know uh actions or you know throughout the course of this war he's been pretty inclusive uh i would say um now, of course, we in the West we view as you mentioned Zelensky as this the Churchill-like figure.
1: Unless you're Tucker Carlson and then you think he's a Weasley criminal, something or other, right? I mean, yeah, of course. You know, there's a caricature. Of the other, there's a cartoonishness going the other way too, right?
2: There is. Uh, there is, which is um, when you look at the situation, it's absolutely uh, farcical uh, that you know all, all these conspiracies that, you know, Zelensky's wife is buying $5 million villas in the south of France and, you know, all this stuff. All this stuff is just perpetuated by people like Tucker Carlson who actually know better, but, uh, you know, have, have made a, a, a very um, uh, a very good career out of being the uh, conspiratorial contrarian in all of this. Um, but, you know, my concern is that if, Z- Z- if Zelensky is somehow uh, god forbid killed uh so many in the west have you know, see him as the image of ukraine like the public face
1: of ukraine the indispensable man as they yeah, say about Washington. and i yeah. think that's
2: dangerous in the long term i think the ukrainians as a society as a nation have shown this 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 uh, incredible amount of pluck and willingness to to fight in some cases not only defending their country or their cities or their towns but I've heard of, you know, I've spoken to people in Ukraine where they, you know, were defending their their homes or or their families against the the Russian uh, invaders. And I think this is now ingrained in Ukrainian society that um, from a Ukrainian's point of view, uh, if there was a change of leadership at the top and it was a strong leader like President Zelensky, it wouldn't change much in terms of the national uh, willingness to defend itself. I just worry how that might impact Western calculus and Western policymaking, uh, in you know London and Berlin and in
1: DC. No, that's a good point. Um, I feel like there are probably some Vietnam parallels there, which we can avoid. But um, it is funny—not necessarily ha funny—but um, Russia was all read in, and all and Putin in particular was all bought into this idea that. Ukrainians and Russians are the same people, that if you speak Russian, you are Russian, right? This is, and this was a positive going back to the czars and certainly Stalin, that if you just move Russian speakers into places and you Russify them, they become Russian and it was a very imperialist, assimilationist kind of thing. And the, one of the great ironies is, is that Russia's invasion, and particularly the this the, the this brutal way it ran the parts that it took over starting in 2014 has turned a lot of Russian speakers who probably 15 years ago saw themselves as essentially Russians in Ukraine into pretty vibrant Russian, I mean, Ukrainian nationalists. Like the, the, sometimes you, to get the pearl of nationhood, you need to irritate the oyster with an invasion, right? And he's like, Napoleon did that to a lot of places. And and so Putin's invasion, on the premise that Ukraine wasn't a real nation, turned it into a real nation more than almost anything else could.
2: I mean, there there are all sorts of um, paradoxes uh, when it when you consider what Russia hoped to achieve uh, with its invasion of Ukraine, uh, large scale invasion of Ukraine last year, and then what it's received. Uh, you pointed out this 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 national identity in in Ukraine that just didn't exist before at this level. Um, y- you've seen, you know, Finland and soon Sweden joining NATO, something that was, uh, you know, many thought would be unheard of uh, until uh, Russia's large-scale invasion of Ukraine took place. And you y- you would go to, before, before February of 2022, you would go to places like Odessa uh, and you would, you know, you would speak to people and I wouldn't say I would describe them as pro-Russia, but they were certainly, you know, more sympathetic to the Russian view of the world or the the Russian way of thinking. And this is completely gone now. I mean, the, any goodwill that Vladimir Putin had in Ukraine has basically evaporated uh, over the night of February 24th. Uh, so in in the longer term, I think this will help uh and this, this will help solidify Ukraine's national identity uh, of being one that can be diverse, one that can be multicultural, but still be Ukrainian. And I think that is a great thing for Ukraine society.
0: The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumba. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: So um, I've never gotten a really great answer on maybe because there is no great answer. So in the Donbass, Kherson, those kinds of areas, it turned a lot of people who were just sort of ambidextrously Ukrainian and Russian into Ukrainians. What about Crimea? Like, let's say for the sake of argument that Ukraine could effectively, in this counteroffensive, cut off the land bridge, take back Crimea in a meaningful way. What is the sense in Kiev or in your own mind or both about whether or not the actual Crimean in the street wants that? I mean, I, I think the. The the annexation of Crimea wasn't a real referendum, all that kind of stuff, right? But it also didn't spark mass resistance to it either, right? So do the Crimeans want to be Russians? Do the Crimeans want to be Ukrainians? would, if if you could put it up for a vote tomorrow, do you think Crimeans would say, hey, let's rejoin Ukraine?
2: Well, it would be impossible to put it up to a a fair vote tomorrow because so many people have been displaced since uh, 2014. Tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, uh, have fled uh, Crimea to the the rest of Ukraine. Uh, In particular, the indigenous population, the Crimean Talters, which have a long history of persecution under Russian rule dating back to Catherine the Great. uh, They, uh, for all intents and purposes, have been dispersed from Crimea, or at least the ones that have remained are uh, persecuted on a daily basis for their their, their language, their, their religion, and uh, their cultural identity. I think when it comes to the Crimea, we have to look at um, international norms, uh, international law and facts. Um, you know, y- Ukraine held a referendum in 1991 on whether or not it wanted to uh, become independent or remain a part of the newly established Russian Federation in the, in the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And a majority of Ukrainians in every region of Ukraine, including Crimea, voted to become independent. Be, vote to become an independent country uh, that we now have, uh, of the, now that we call Ukraine. In fact, um, Russia was one of the first countries, within 24 hours, I think it was the second country after Canada, to recognize the outcome of this referendum and recognize Ukraine's independence. Meanwhile, it took, it took the U.S. government at the time three weeks before it recognized Ukraine's independence. And, you know, actually that, that same month, December of 1991, the, the U.S. State Department was flying the Soviet flag. And, you know, if you walk into the State Department, there's this gallery of flags. It was flying the Soviet flag uh, for four days longer than the Soviet flag was flying above the Kremlin and the uh, the, the, the former Soviet embassy here in Washington, D.C. so the U.S. is very slow to recognize this, but Russia recognized Ukraine's independence right away, uh, including uh, uh, Ukrainian uh, control over Crimea. And in simple terms, Crimea is Ukraine. I mean, in the same way that uh, Alaska was once part of Russia, but is now part of the United States. Uh, it's this—it's the same uh, same concept. Uh, Crimea is Ukrainian territory, and unless we want to open Pandora's box by accepting the the change of national borders by the use of military force in the 21st century, then we should constantly be pressuring Russia to relinquish control over Crimea and return it back to Ukraine. Now, in 2014, uh, when the so-called little green men kind of popped up, uh, it was an invasion from within uh, with Russian troops already in Crimea and unmarked, uh, uh, out of uniform, uh, Russian special forces acting like local dissidents rising up and then Russia annexing Crimea. The situation, you know with Ukraine in general was a lot different and if you fast forward to today you have a Ukraine that has this new national identity you have this Ukraine that is going to that is a candidate to join the European Union uh, we have a Ukraine that is on the path to NATO membership and you have a Ukraine that's firmly integrated into the Euro Atlantic community i think all those things are very appealing for those ethnic russians living in crimea who want a better future for themselves, for their kids, for their families, their future is going to be better in the Euro-Atlantic community. An example I give is with Narva. Narva is a a city in Estonia along the Estonian-Russian border. It's ethnically uh, Russian, vast majority, like over 90%, perhaps 95%, ethnically Russian. In 2014, it was common to read articles in Western media about Narva is next. Right. You know, that was the next hot spot where Russia is going to try to, uh, you know, encourage rebellion and and break away from from another country where Russian speakers are. And I traveled to Narva then because I wanted to learn for myself if Narva was next. And all the uh, ethnic Russians I spoke to said, why would we leave Estonia? (laughs) Yeah, we have brothers and sisters and parents and relatives in Russia. Yeah, we might even be a little sympathetic to what Russia is doing. But look at our pensions, look at our, our standard of living, look at our opportunities for our children. It's far better in Estonia, in the Euro-Atlantic community. And I think uh, over time, many of the ethnic Russians living in Crimea will view, uh, view it the same way. They'll see their lot is better with Ukraine and the Euro-Atlantic community than with a, a dying Russian federation as part of the Eurasian Economic Union.
1: I think it's a good point. Um, It kind of reminds me of uh, Israeli Arabs who they talk a big game about how Israel's bad and Palestinians deserve this and that and the other thing. And I'm not saying all their points are invalid or their complaints are invalid, but they also are pretty adamant that they want to stay in Israel (laughs) and be Israeli citizens rather than move to the West bank or Gaza or anything like that. And, and, um, at the same time, there is, I remember I had Leon Aaron on, my colleague at AI, uh, before the invasion, and, and, and I have to say, Leon didn't think the invasion was going to happen. I mean, the full-scale invasion. For the reasonable reason that it was so antithetical to Putin's interests to actually do it. But of course, Leon, and, and he's not alone, a lot of us. Did a little foreign policy mirroring and assumed that Putin's interests were defined on a rational calcula- calculus, and they were not. Um, but one of the points that Leon made was is that Russians still have this mindset. Not all Russians, obviously, but many Russians still have this mindset that says, "Sure, my my economic prospects are terrible and don't look like they're going to get better for me or my kids and you know we don't have this we don't have that but at least we are respected around the world as a great power kind of mindset and i think you know there are very few americans that actually feel that way i mean they like to say yeah we're a superpower and yeah we're the leader of the free world and all that kind of stuff but there are very few americans who think or even could articulate or conceive of saying you know, my schools suck and uh, the highway sucks and we can't get uh, good healthcare here, but at least we're the fr- leader of the free world, right? That is not <laughs> the way Americans think about things. And I don't think it's the way a lot of Europeans, West Europeans think about things, but it is still a mindset in Russia. And when I see Russians weeping over the impromptu, you know, memorial sites of of Prigozhin, and weeping over, you know, the, the, this hero of the fatherland or the motherland, um, dying, um, it does not fill my heart with optimism about the rational self-interest of a lot of Russians, including Russians in Crimea. I mean, I hope you're right. I have no reason to think you're wrong. Um, except for the fact that I don't understand how so many Russians can be as and it, you can't say, you can't say that Russians don't know, they may not know the full extent of the horror that's going on in Ukraine. I think that's fair to say. But when you hear these nightly broadcasts where they're talking about burning children in churches and and genocide and that kind of stuff, and there's enough stuff that gets through, through VPNs and whatnot, that a lot of Russians know what's happening. And they are they may not be okay with it in their hearts, but I think a lot are. And, and at the very least, they're stoic about it. And so... I worry about trying to anticipate the rational human self-interest of Russians um, in a way I would be perfectly happy to do about English people or Canadians or Mexicans and you know, that kind of thing. Am I just off base on that?
2: No, I think part of the issue is that um the 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 hardships, the loss of life, the uh conscription that has taken place has not really touched on many of the elites or the commentators or even the middle classes of St. Petersburg and Moscow, but has instead focused on the periphery of the Russian Federation, ethnic minority groups, um, often ethnically Turkic and Muslim, um, or from, you know, the far reaches of Siberia. So you you don't have, you you won't have this concentration of, uh, Discontent uh, focus on the capital or the major urban areas um, because of this, and I think that might be one of the reasons why there's this at least this perception that the Russians are willing to tolerate much more than what we were uh, expecting. I think this also played a role in uh, how we miscalculated the impact of economic sanctions. Uh, are, the, are, are the economic sanctions having an impact? Absolutely they are. This is undeniable but they're not the silver bullet that many people had hoped. Uh and the, and the Russian people uh are quite you know willing to uh forego, um the actual well, like today I saw that with Domino's pizza being, you know, out of Russia, they have created this new knockoff brand of Domino. It looks like Domino, but it's called something else. And, you know, the Russians will quite happily eat that pizza uh rather than Domino's pizza. They I mean I don't think it really factors into their 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 thinking very much. I think when it comes to Russia's tolerance for um, suffering, uh, this is going to be really led by Vladimir Putin. Uh, You know, he will, um, I think he will go along uh, for a long way uh, down this road of destruction and suffering and uh, before he, I don't think he would ever alter his course of action Mm -hmm. right now. I think he understands that this is about regime preservation for him. This is about ultimately his survival. And this is the interesting thing about Russia's large-scale invasion of Ukraine um, last year. Leading up to February 23rd of 2022, I believe that everything Vladimir Putin did was about regime preservation, regime survival, uh, maintaining his power and influence. Then on February 24th, 2022, like many, I was trying to rationalize how Russians might view this, how Vladimir Putin might view this decision. I think he saw um, weakness in the West. I think he saw, um, you know, he he calculated what he's been able to do in the past, what Russia has been able to do in the past and get away with, whether it was the invasion of Georgia in 2008, the annexation of Crimea in 2014, um, everything that's been done in Syria to prop up Bashar al-Assad and uh, facilitate his his, uh, killing machine there. And he thought, you know what, I could probably get away with this quickly. We'll move in fast, it'll all be over before anyone knows it, and then a few months down the line, um, you know, the world would have moved on. I think he completely miscalculated there. And I think part of that is because of President Zelensky himself staying in Kiev and Zelensky's willingness to, to not flee and to fight. Um, so from February twenty fourth on, I think Putin was thinking about legacy. I think he was acutely aware of his role in Russia's modern history as being the first strong leader since the collapse of the Soviet Union, and his role in restoring uh, Russian greatness. And he he really like threw the dice on his large scale invasion of Ukraine, and now he's uh, you know paying the consequences for this. Now eighteen months on. Uh, I think he's back to regime preservation and re- regime survival. Um, uh, you know, I don't, I, I don't think that uh, he honestly believes that uh, the outcome of this war is going to be um, a, a stronger and greater Russia that has more territory and all of Ukraine as he originally planned.
1: Yeah. So um, before we pivot to the domestic scene a little bit, but um, how do you read? The current, I was having a mild disagreement with with my colleague Steve Hayes here, um, where he thought Putin came out of this Prigozhin assassination, and we're just going to stipulate that Putin had him killed. I don't really think you know people talk about how it's a mystery. It's not a mystery. Um, no, no. Um, but um, it's like you know when you see a turtle on a fence post, you know you know someone put it there. Um, yeah. But. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Steve's position was that he thought Putin came out of this stronger. I see, I mean, he, killing Boghossian makes Putin seem stronger. He found it necessary to do it. But I, if you look over the timescale since February 24th, it seems to me that Putin's weaker. Like he may be more hunkered down, which is what you have to do when you're in a survival crouch, right? And you're lashing out and taking generals out. But it seems to me it's difficult to look at the Russian regime now and say it's much more unified. It's much stronger than it was. It's, it's in survival mode, which is a different thing than stronger. Right. I mean, like, how do you, I know you're not a criminologist, but I mean, how do you see Putin's tenure these days?
2: No, I, I agree with you that um, they're in survival mode. As I said, he's in regime preservation mode. I wouldn't say he's stronger. I think he had no choice but to have Kurgosian killed. I mean, think about what, you know, for for weeks, Kurgosian was taunting the Kremlin on social media in a very public way. And then one day he wakes up and takes over the headquarters of the Southern Military District and then uh, marches on Moscow and on the way uh, shoots down several Russian aircraft, killing, you know, several Russian pilots uh, in the process. Of course, there had to be some sort of consequence for this otherwise it would have um really opened the door for more um uh, opportunities to uh undermine Putin's rule uh you know imagine you know some rogue element in these inside the United States capturing CINCOM in Tampa, (laughs) and then starting to drive up 95, although traffic would probably be more of a problem, but, you know, driving up 95 and getting just a few hundred miles outside Washington, D.C., I mean, it's it's crazy to think, but this is, oh, and by the way, along the way, shooting down several U.S. helicopters and jets. um, This is exactly what happened in in Russia. So Pergosian's days were numbered. I'm shocked how, how naive he was to, to fly back and, and do what he was doing, uh, he must have known that he was, he was marked. And I think there's a question about the future of the Wagner group and what role it will or will not play, um, whether it's in Eastern Europe or Africa or whatnot. But uh, I, I wouldn't say Putin is stronger. I would say he's, he's just merely surviving right now.
1: All right, so let's turn to domestic Politics vis a vis Ukraine, right? I mean, I, I really, yeah. we're not, I'm not going to talk to you about uh, indexing capital gains or any of that kind of stuff. But uh, um, Good. <laughs> <laughs> um, first of all, I, I would be remiss if I didn't actually ask you to make this case. So uh, let's cheat and front load what would probably be your response to many of these people saying Ukraine's not our interest. Make your elevator pitch about why supporting Ukraine as an American self-interest?
2: Yeah, well, uh, firstly, I understand um, in, in the opening segment of the of this uh, podcast, you talked about how important the, the moral argument is and the, 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 the value-based reasons and the normative reasons. But sadly, Jonah, we're in this situation, this funny situation today in America where these reasons no longer resonate as as strongly as they used to. and I think that's a whole different question we should have about uh, our national identity and and, and America's role in the world. But nevertheless, we are where we are. So if I had, you know, if I was giving an elevator pitch based solely on U.S. national interests, the first point I would make is that North America and Europe account for about 44% of global GDP. We're each other's number one source of foreign direct investment. We're each responsible for the creation of millions of jobs on either side of the Atlantic. And we're each other's number one export partner. Uh, 45 out of 50 American states export more to Europe than they do to China. And when an American is exporting a product or a service to Europe, that means an American job. And this economic prosperity in Europe that facilitates these exports from America it's only possible because of the stability and security across the continent that Vladimir Putin is trying to undermine right now. That's what he's trying to do in Ukraine and that's what he wants to do with the rest of Europe. So ultimately, this could impact Americans' uh, jobs and, and, and bank accounts. Secondly, in this era of great power competition, we are seeing the dismantling of the conventional forces of the Russian Federation right before our very eyes without a single American firing a, a shot or uh, getting shot at. And all for a rel- relatively low cost uh, to the U.S. taxpayer. It's a great return on investment. We could talk about the numbers later if you want. And then the final uh, point I make has to do less with Europe and more with uh, China. Uh, Russia and China are partners. Uh, Russia might be China's junior partner, but they are partners nevertheless. Um, it's no coincidence that when uh, President Xi visited Moscow in March. That same week, Prime Minister of Japan, Kishida, visited Kiev. Uh, these, the regions of uh, East Asia and Eastern Europe are intimately linked when it comes to security and U.S. national interests. And is watching how we respond with our support to Ukraine because it has its eyes, of course, on Taiwan. And a stronger Ukraine, in my opinion, will mean a stronger and safer Taiwan
1: going forward. So, um, but I have been reliably informed by Vivek Ramaswamy that all it would take (laughs) is for uh, a President Ramaswamy to give Ukraine, give about a quarter to a third of Ukraine to the Russians on the promise that Russia no longer be buddies with China. Why isn't Vivek right about all of that? (laughs) Well, I
2: think (laughs) one of your colleagues at AEI described this as criminally stupid. I would also describe it as hopelessly naive. Uh, This is like the stuff, these are the proposals that, You know, when you're in the Model UN in high school, and your girlfriend's on another delegation, and you're trying to like impress her, these are like the crazy ideas that one might come up with. Uh, This is amateur hour, to to be completely honest with you. It takes in, it does not take in consideration any of the second and third order effects of what this policy might mean for Europe and. Transatlantic security and our relations with Europe. As I mentioned, this is a huge area of economic activity, and it's important to the not only to the U.S. as a nation, but to the American worker. Uh, it doesn't factor any of that into the thinking. But most importantly, uh, Luhansk, Donetsk, Zaporizhia, Crimea, uh, Kherson—they're not ours to give. <laughs> the, the, right. the idea that we, that we could just like hand them over. And then all of a sudden, Russia's going to align with us to counter China. It's just so naive. It, it doesn't make any uh, geopolitical sense at all. It might sound nice, but when, when it meets reality, uh, it's not going to deliver the results that you might hope for.
1: Yeah, I mean, to me, it's a little, I mean, I, I like the Model UN thing. There's a, I don't know if you ever watched it, but Parks and Rec, the, TV, the sitcom, they had a great episode where they ran up Model UN. And uh, Chris Pratt, the Andy Dwyer character, I think he's the, the representative for Finland and he agrees to trade his entire Navy, I think, for all the lions <laughs> in Africa. It's <laughs> like this is a thing that countries <laughs> yeah. do. Right? Yeah. You know? We're pretty and, much at that level
2: right now with, with, with this line of thinking.
1: Well, it's, it's sort of like you know, Vivek has tripled down on this claim that if he had been the vice president on January 6th, what he would have done is call for a moment of national unity to agree on same-day voting and other reforms to elections before he approved of the thing. And you actually have to take a second and think through what that actually means. What he's saying is he's saying, so like the Democrats just won an election. It's January 6th. The president's saying all this stuff, there are rioters outside and Vivek is going to go and propose on the Senate floor this idea that we're going to have, we're going to, we're going to stop procedures here and, and draft some legislation about same day voting, which is not constitutional because of the state. I mean, it's like, you can go through layers and layers and layers of it until you realize that he's making a fool of you by taking him seriously at all. Right. That's the whole trick with Vivek is you, you, it sounds smart enough that you It takes such mental energy to realize how stupid some of his positions are (laughs) that you give him the benefit of the doubt out of laziness, right? I mean, um, it's like, you know, his thing about we're going to abandon Taiwan after we get chip independence, which he's now changed his position on. It betrays, it's very much the model UN thinking. It's like, we don't, we can say the quiet part out loud and just say to all our allies, once you're no longer useful to us, we will betray you and sell you off to the highest bidder. That's and for a guy who constantly talks about national unity and leadership and all this kind of stuff, I'm embarrassed for him to a certain extent. Except for the fact that it's working for him. Anyway, we don't need to dwell on him. I'm just sort of
2: he's just unserious. He's he's unserious about these matters. I think that's the best way to describe it.
0: Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at BeatTheStigma.org.
1: But let's go through some of the other um, superficially, what what, de Tocqueville somewhere writes about how certain ideas, certain ideas are clear but false ideas. Like they seem like really obvious. And then turns out when you think about it, they're not. What about this blank check thing? Um, where, Where do you, like, what, What's wrong with saying we're giving Ukraine a blank check, which is McCarthy's go to Kevin McCarthy's go to line to sound like he's caving into the anti Ukraine aid people.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, blank check is a uh, bumper sticker, not a policy. Uh, There's never been a blank check given to Ukraine. Every dollar that is spent in support of Ukraine is authorized by Congress and used for a specific purpose uh vast majority of this money never leaves the United States and it you know it goes to replenish US stocks that of, of munitions and weapons that were given to Ukraine or um it goes to uh defense companies to manufacture these goods that were giving to Ukraine now it's it's i find it very curious that you know there's some on the right who now criticize America having this very capable world leading robust defense sector uh, using the same arguments that we heard from the left in the 1970s about the evils of the defense industrial base, and this is all about war profiting and, and, and whatnot. Uh, but that's the reality. There are no blank checks. There's never been a blank check. We authorize all this money through Congress, and we, we uh, authorize how it's uh, going to be spent.
1: It's also a very weird argument coming from the sector of American politics that has this newfound love affair with industrial policy. And so like I like I, I don't like industrial policy. I make exceptions for national defense. But I one of the reasons I don't like making exceptions for national defense is then that makes everybody make everything a national defense issue. So like ethanol subsidies are part of national defense. No, they're not, right? But like making missiles and helicopters and stuff, that's national defense. And and I think there are credible arguments about making it at home or at least in reliable allies nearby for supply chain reasons that mean that you don't necessarily go straight market principle on. Right. I I think that's fair. What is weird to me is how the people who think that's absolutely true about making, uh, cars and bicycles, um, think it's an outrageous war profiteering thing to do it for American, you know, military armaments and preparedness. It's just a very weird sort of, Disc, you know, cognitive dissonance on this thing.
2: Yes, I, I completely agree. And it's, it's quite the um, you know, intellectual journey to, to go from one to the other.
1: So, so it's not an 800-pound gorilla, but it's, it's, it's a good-sized gorilla. Um, in the room here is you um, were, for a good period of time, a defense policy Ukraine guy at Heritage. Uh, The Heritage Foundation, um, a think tank in Washington um, that, as I always say, still has good people there, though a lot of them have been fleeing over the recent years or months. And one of the reasons I I, I don't want to misspeak here, but one of the reasons you left was because you disagreed with Heritage about its Ukraine stance. The head of the defense policy shop recently quit for the same reasons in the wake of this really egregious ad campaign um, about how we're taking money from Hawaiian fire victims and sending it to Ukraine. Can I get, I, I don't want to dwell on it. I know you've got friends there and it's not a fun thing to talk about for you necessarily, but like what the hell's going on over there? What is your theory of the case? Um, and and what is the best way do you think conservatives, Reaganites, which I think, I think supporting Ukraine is a Reaganite position if they're ever to the extent you can use those kinds of labels today the reaganite position is to help ukraine it's like like straight out of the reagan doctrine um which the heritage foundation was once one of the leading architects of intellectually how what what arguments do you use when you're trying to have a good faith disagreement with people who are spouting the bug out of ukraine immediately position from the right
2: yeah well i mean I- it was the reason why I left after a decade at the Heritage Foundation. Um, the the uh, position over Ukraine, the unwillingness to support uh, any funding in Congress that could go towards helping Ukraine. Uh, as someone who, um, in various roles over the course of two decades, has been focused on transatlantic security, whether that was as a young army officer based in Italy or as uh, you know, a think tank scholar here in Washington, working uh, with the executive in Capitol Hill to make sure good policies are implemented, uh, I couldn't in good faith uh, stay at an organization that wasn't going to um, take these issues uh, seriously and in a nonpartisan way. Uh, the, the stakes are too high, so um, that, that is why I left. Uh, when I like to use just the facts when it comes to uh, why Ukraine matters, uh, you can easily debunk these issues about blank checks. You can debunk these issues about forever wars. I, I hear this all the time that Americans are tired of forever wars. Well, if Americans are tired of Ukraine right now, imagine how Ukrainians feel <laughs> because we're not fi- we're not we're not fighting there. And you know, and I will say this as an Afghan vet myself. Uh, 99.5% of Americans never served in Iraq or Afghanistan. Right. So, th- this idea that there's this national fatigue uh, from Iraq and Afghanistan, I just don't believe it because it never touched your average American. I w- I remember going after my deployment to Afghanistan back home. I'm from Missouri. I went to a Cardinals game in St. Louis and I was in the stadium with like, you know, 30,000, 40,000 people. And I felt like uh, for a while I was on another planet. It was like, you know, no one had, no one, really cared or thought much about what was happening in Iraq or, or Afghanistan. And, and, you know, that's a whole nother issue we can discuss and talk about. And overall, I think that's fine that the American society didn't have to carry this burden and just a small amount did. But let's not pretend that we can't support Ukraine because we're fatigued from Iraq and Afghanistan. It, it's just nonsense. Um, if you think that there needs to be more transparency for USA to Ukraine, I'm all about transparency and accountability, but let's see some of the proposals you want, you want to implement. You know, it's just talking points, not enough accountability, too many blank checks, Americans tired of forever wars, but the stakes are high right now. I feel like many of our policymakers in Washington, they do not uh, appreciate the historical significance of the times we live in, especially with what's happening with Ukraine, what could happen with Taiwan it is a very dangerous world out there. And the US needs to take an America first position, which is ensuring that our interests are met overseas and our allies are taken care of and our adversaries are weakened. That is the America first position, not trying to draw up the, uh, you know, the, bringing up the drawbridge and pretending like, uh, you know, what happens around the world doesn't matter. In uh, using you know populist talking points to try to make a case that 's not responsible uh, and I think part of this actually uh, is lays at the feet of President Biden uh, when it comes to foreign policy issues, most Americans don 't have an opinion one way or the other unless they're asked for one, and then they have strong opinions about it. The Americans want to be led on foreign policy. They want a strong leader at the top making the case, explaining to the American people what is in America's interest, why it's in America's interest, and what we need to do about it. And we have not had that with Ukraine. You know, when, when President Biden does talk about the importance of Ukraine, he talks about things like preserving the rules-based order and things like this. And you know, like, I've been involved in this stuff for about, like I said, two decades. I'm not even sure I know what the hell the (laughs) rules-based order is, right? These words are meaningless to your average American. And when you talk about, instead of rules-based order, you talk about the economic dependency we have with Europe, the threats we get from China and Russia trying to undermine U.S. national interests, and the fact that the Ukrainians are willing to fight the Russians to defend their homeland without asking for a single U.S. soldier uh, on the ground. Uh, I think you can start making a compelling case. And then when you look at the cost of doing this, which in the big picture, you know, U.S. support to Ukraine uh, uh, amounts to less than two-tenths of 1% of America's GDP. And, And for this, we're getting, like I said, the dismantling of the conventional forces of the Russian Federation. So it's great value for money. The problem is President Biden is articulating this and it creates this vacuum that's being filled by some on the left, some on the right, who don't want America involved in this war.
1: Yeah, I mean, so there's a lot going on there. I agree with all of it. Um, the, so like the forever war thing, I agree with you, entirely. it's, how do I put this? So the, the argument that used to be made on the right was that, that American elites are disconnected from people fighting on the ground. Uh, we don't have enough, the average American doesn't have enough skin in the game because when people like Luke Coffey come back to a baseball stadium, Maybe there are like six other guys in the stadium who were there and everyone else is living their lives like it's normal. And um, that's sort of a bad imperial mindset where we have, we're have we sending imperial grunts off in the world to do our fighting for us where we don't feel like we're making any sacrifices ourselves. That was a perfectly valid argument. could be taken too far, but there's there's meat on those bones, right? None of that applies here because we don't actually have boots on the ground in Ukraine. That was the other argument. Like if we had sent troops into Ukraine like we did in Iraq and Afghanistan, people say, "Well, why do we have to send troops? Why can't we just help them fight for themselves?" You know, if 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 it's so important let the Iraqis do the fighting, we'll give them the guns. That's exactly what is happening in Ukraine where the Ukrainians are doing the fighting and we're just giving them some guns and people say, "No, no, no, that's just because you want war." And it's like it's completely disconnected from the actual facts of the case because people are locked into these scripts. At this point. And and so it I I hate on these kinds of issues assuming bad faith on people because war is a serious thing and 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 all that. But it's very difficult for me to find good faith arguments from the right about all of this. Where if you're finding so many people who are having to sort of say things that aren't true about Putin, right? Because you can't actually describe what Putin is doing factually and say you're rooting for the guy. So you have to make up stuff about how, you know, Tucker said recently that the reason why our elites don't like Russia is because Russia is a Christian nation, um, which gives me a migraine, right? Um, uh, <laughs> like we, if you run through the numbers, if Russia were a state, it would be by far the least Christian state in the United States by far. It would have. Yeah. By church attendance, regular church, church attendance, any yeah. of that kind of stuff. Right. And plus, The definition of what makes you a good Christian right now, according to the Putin regime, is being willing to slaughter people, right? Which is not really on point for a lot of ways Americans define Christianity. The abortion rate, you know, the highest abortion rate in the country is like 23 per thousand in New Jersey. Um, Russia's is well over 50 percent. It is not a integral social order or any of these kinds of things. It is not a Christian nation in any meaningful sense. It is, a, it is a dysfunctional pathological state. Meanwhile, Zelensky is not a mobster and he's not a rat-like Jew and all these kinds of things that people are sort of hinting at. And so my problem with the Heritage Foundation position because they're ending at lending intellectual credibility to what I think are basically meritless positions. Is that it's a sign of a real kind of degradation on the right about thinking that arguments really matter because that's the thing that I always thought was the advantage that conservatives had is they were willing to actually make the arguments on the merits and particularly conservative think tanks were and that seems to be sort of gone out the window these days on big chunks of the right. Sorry for monologuing, but that's sort of it's a real frustration of mine.
2: Yeah, no, I I, I completely agree, and you know on, on your earlier point about. Um, uh, your average American not having much skin in the game in Iraq and Afghanistan is a a valid one. But we also shouldn't forget that, you know, rightfully so, we have an all-volunteer military. And, and, you know, when we sign up, we know exactly what we're getting into. If you signed up after September 11, 2001, you knew exactly what you were getting into. Um, And that's a big distinction, I think, from, you know, places like, you know Russia, where there's mass conscription, where people are you know forced to the front lines as cannon fodder. Especially if you're from ethnic minority groups uh, or religious minority groups, um, there's a, a big distinction there. I uh, again, I think a lot of this goes back down to to, to leadership. Uh, you know, instinctively, Americans support the underdog. Uh, for Americans who, and this is even you know. Forget conservative or liberal or progressive or what you know, whatever. Just you know, Am- Americans who um, want strong borders, respect national sovereignty, um, and believe in the right of self-defense. Uh, that alone is reason enough to support the cause of Ukraine's national defense. Like you, I wouldn't support U.S. boots on the ground. In the earlier days of the large-scale invasion, when people were calling for no-fly zones, I was against no-fly zones because people don't realize that before implementing a no-fly zone, you have to first uh, destroy the ground-based air defense systems. And many of these were located inside the Russian Federation itself. So this would mean a direct attack on on Russia. As long as the, the Ukrainians are willing to fight for their national survival and fight for their freedom and independence, that the U.S. should be more than willing to provide them the weapons to do so. And you often hear this argument from some saying that, well, we're prolonging the war. Uh, if we would cut off the weapons, we would bring peace faster. Well, if we cut off the weapons, we'd bring a Russian victory faster. Right. The right. idea that uh, Vladimir Putin is just waiting at the negotiating table for President Zelensky to show up is, is very naive and is simply not the case. Uh, So if we stop arming Ukraine tomorrow, the Ukrainians will keep fighting. They'll lose more territory. They'll lose it faster. But they will keep fighting because at this point, they know what awaits them. People have seen the images from Bucha. They've seen what Bakhmut looks like. They've seen what happened to cities like Mariupol. And they will keep fighting with or without uh, Western or American weapons. Our weapons give them a better chance at winning, and uh, makes the fight fairer for them. While at the same time, uh, advances U.S. national interests, which is one of making sure Europe is stable and secure, and America's adversaries, such as Russia and China, are weakened.
1: I'm glad you brought up, but I know we're running out of time, but I just a couple of questions I didn't get to. One is, so I'm t- when you're talking about. Biden's handling this. I am truly legitimately torn about this because as a matter of political analysis, on the one hand, I I think Biden should be congratulated for doing the right thing, even if he's been doing the right thing slowly. Right. Um, I think both of us agree that it would have been better to not play this game of saying no five times and then say, yes, just, just, give them the stuff that they need, let's do this, lend lease the hell out of this mofo and, and, and be done with it, right? And I think the Biden administration's arguments early on about some of these points were, some of their pushback was, was valid. I mean, you would know more about it than I would, but there were certain things we just couldn't leap to do without getting NATO allies on board, right? And so holding NATO together and keeping it unified Behind sending tanks or whatever. If that's truly the case, okay, I get it. But it does seem like Biden is slow walking a lot of these things in a sort of hurry up and wait kind of way, which annoys me. At the same time, I agree with you entirely that it would be good if Biden could give a speech laying out the argument as you make it for why we should help Ukraine. At the same time, I worry that if Biden made Ukraine more central to his administration and his reelection and all that kind of stuff, it would make it a lot more difficult for Republicans to support it because of the asinine nature of polarization right now. Like, you know, it's, it's it was sort of like the best things that happened under the Trump administration were things that were created create the Trump administration. The, the best, the only times you ever get good sort of bipartisan stuff is when a democratic president pretends he doesn't care about it or when a Republican president pretends he doesn't care about it. And that way it's okay for the other side to buy into it. And, and so like if, if Biden made his administration all about Ukraine, then I fear that a lot of Republicans would say opposition to Ukraine is central to opposition to Biden. And I don't know that Biden has anything like the, you know, Bill Clinton's chops at being able to sell something as important as this, and so I sometimes worry that maybe it's best if he just keeps his mouth shut um, and not make this central to his administration, because it could invite a sort of right wing antibody response that elevates in importance. Am I just thinking myself into circles here?
2: No, I, I, Jonah. As we approach the you know full swing of the U.S. presidential election cycle, I, I think this is a risk. Um, had President Biden earlier on, uh, you know, 18 months ago, 12 months ago, made more of a compelling case to the American people in ways that Americans saw um, how it benefited the U.S. to help Ukraine, I think we'd be in a different position today. Uh, you're right, as we head into this even more politicized, hyper-politicized uh um, phase of U.S. election politics, you, how you outline, um, you know, a strong uh, vocal support from President Biden now has risk, as, as, you, as you outlined. Um, so this is a challenge for everyone else that believes that Ukraine matters to the United States' interests, that Ukraine uh, matters to the future stability of, of Europe, that Ukraine matters to the future stability of Taiwan. Uh, it's up to us to make the case uh, to the American people, to policymakers in Washington, and explain why that this is the case. And I, I, there are many of us out here doing this on a daily basis. You know, daily, I'm engaging with uh, with Capitol Hill. I'm engaging with commentators and stakeholders on this issue, making the case. And I'm not alone. And, I, you know, the polling shows, uh, in, in general terms and overall, the polling shows strong U.S. bipartisan support for Ukraine. Now, depending on how you ask the specific question will depend on the different nuanced poll results that you can get. But by and large, Americans support Ukraine. I you know, travel quite a bit uh, around the country, um, and I anecdotally hear strong support for Ukraine. Uh, you know, Like I said, Americans instinctively support the underdog, and we uh, understand the threat that Russia poses to U.S. national interests. All
1: right, so last question, I should have asked this much earlier, and this may be as close as I get to sort of the vague level geostrategic analysis kind of thing. Um, I didn't say altitude, I said level, so that levels can be very low. Um, But, um, (laughs) so as I understand it, to be a member of NATO, you can go to war Without invoking the charter that says everybody's got to come with me, right? It's The charter only kind of kicks in when you've been intact. But America has gone into things without asking uh, that NATO itself get our back. And it seems to me, if I'm a, in Warsaw, and I'm looking at what's going on in Ukraine, right? If I'm, maybe not the Baltics, but because they're just too small. But if, if, if I'm Poland, and i see that ukraine is faltering i'm not saying they are but let's just say for the sake of example i kind of get the impression that the polish military could really give russia at this point a serious pasting right and um and i know everyone's worried about escalation but like is it conceivable that poland or and Hungary's kind of out of the question these days, but there are a couple other sort of East European, the Czechs um, could see it in their interest to actually join, put boots on the ground in a serious way in Ukraine without asking for other NATO members to do the same? Um, Or do you think that's that's just not gonna happen and it really couldn't happen for some reason that I haven't thought through?
2: I mean, theoretically it is possible. But one thing NATO as an institution likes to pride itself on is consensus and and coordination and consulting one another before taking big steps. Um, Article 5 of the North Atlantic Treaty, which everyone knows very well as being the security guarantee, an attack on one is an attack on all, actually doesn't have a trigger. It's ultimately a political decision. If all the members of NATO agree that a certain attack was an Article 5 attack, then it becomes an Article Five attack. Uh, so, at the end of the day, it, it it's a political decision on how NATO might handle uh, an attack against one of its member states against the Russian Federation. And there's uh, you know examples of uh, you know the, in, in nineteen eighty two the Falkland I- or 80, 82, 83, the Falkland Islands, Britain going down to liberate the Falkland Islands after Argentina invaded. Uh, Look, this had nothing to do with NATO. Britain didn't ask anything from NATO. And uh, the UK went about its business. The difference would be if Poland intervened in Ukraine um, and then Russia retaliated by striking targets inside Poland, then that would really uh, create division inside the alliance on whether or not that was an Article 5 attack. Should we invoke Article 5? if you know i could hear the i could hear it now that you know the tucker carlson's of the world would be like look poland's dragging us into a war with russia um but if any regional country does intervene on behalf of ukraine inside ukraine uh, this would have to be done by the invitation of the ukrainian government uh but i don't see this uh on the cards anytime soon uh, i think we there's a huge policy space between doing nothing at all for Ukraine, and then putting boots on the ground from any NATO country. There's a huge policy space in between these two extremes. And that's, you know, we need to find the right balance between these two extremes. Um, uh, and in my opinion, that's arming Ukraine, giving them the tools that they need to win. I and mean, this actually reminds me of this, you know, you, you often hear that um, the position taken by groups like Heritage—they call it the, the the third way or the the middle way in U.S. foreign policy. But it's not the middle way; it's actually an extreme way. I mean, the, the 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 two extremes are doing nothing to help Ukraine, which is what's being advocated for by some, and then putting boots on the ground. The middle way is actually what uh, we're doing. Yeah, what we're doing: arming Ukraine, helping Ukraine uh, win. That's the middle way. And uh, I, th- I think that's the way that reflects the mood of most Americans, uh, and that's the way that guarantees U.S. national interests without undermining our own security and stability.
1: Yeah, I mean that's sort of what I meant when I was saying how this situation is very frustrating because Ukraine has actually acted in a way that anticipated all of the normal objections to like getting involved in a war. Like, we don't want your boots on the ground. We just want your help to fight these guys and we'll do, we'll do the fighting and dying here. And that has left people to sort of, because, because of that fact, it's kind of left people with this, who want to oppose it for domestic political reasons, with this imperative to make up objections that don't really kind of apply to the facts on the ground. I mean, it's sort of like, the, the, they don't want to take yes for an answer. So they have to make up, knows somewhere in there. And it's, it's a very difficult thing to, 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 to fight against.
2: Yeah. Uh, but I, I do find when you take the time to explain, you know, one by one, why these arguments are invalid, uh, it, it's not too hard to make a, a compelling case. Those who don't want to support Ukraine on Capitol Hill uh, or in the policy community, they've made up their minds. Um, they, they've performed these intellectual gymnastics to get to this position um and, and they'll always believe the blank checks they'll always believe that there's no accountability they'll always believe that um you know zelensky is corrupt and you know th- this money's being used to provide to buy his wife villas and and, and whatnot. they'll believe this stuff and there's really no convincing them but there is a, a you know this this group uh, that you know they are on the fence and they need to be convinced why it is in America's interest. And they can be convinced because there is a great case to be made. We just need our leaders on the left, on the right, on Capitol Hill, in the policy community, in the commentating community to make the case uh, and make the case strongly because there is one to be made.
1: All right. That's a great place to leave it. Uh, Luke Coffey, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Um, And hope to have you back. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having uh, me on today. Okay. So uh, Luke Coffey has left the studio. Um, uh, we ended up doing uh, some professional gossip stuff for a little while after we finished recording. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's the way it is with think tank wonks. It's sort of like in the, the was it? The color of money um, about, you know, sort of professional uh, pool competitions. Um, all the real action is in the practice room. Again, I think it's pretty obvious where I come down on all this stuff. I agree with with Luke entirely on the big picture thing. And I, I was selling him afterwards. I think there's a real hunger out there among a lot of Americans who want to root for Ukraine to actually hear the arguments, uh, to hear the actual sort of reality-based, factual, American interest-focused arguments, because there's so many people out there spouting nonsense with a lot of passion and conviction that a lot of normals who maybe don't want to like spend all our time arguing about Ukraine, but generally feel like it's pretty obvious that Ukraine is the underdog and deserves our support. And I just, they want to hear the arguments because they're not being made out there. Um, and so I think Luke is doing a really valuable service. I understand that there was a certain tagline thing at the end of the uh, Gene Twenge, uh podcast uh, that did not appear. Um, I think by the time this podcast appears, it will be restored. That was uh, an editing error that we will um, try to rectify. Of course, as many of you know, I would be perfectly happy for this podcast tradition to come to an end of people saying, no, you won't, this is a podcast. Um, it is something I will never forgive Jack Butler for sticking me with. Um, but. I am nothing if not a servant to my listeners. And so it remains. So, uh, with that, uh, thanks for listening, and I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.